everyone and welcome to the TJ podcast. My name is Debbie Carter and I'm delighted to be talking to Joanne Lockwood today. Joanne is an expert in DNI. She is also a transgender woman and I'm delighted that she's able to come along and talk about positive people experiences which she says is crucial to are moving towards a truly inclusive society. So, without further ado, welcome, uh, Joanne, and tell us a little bit more about your own personal journey. Hi, Debbie. Thank you so much for welcoming me on the show today. Uh, it's a real pleasure. So, my name is Joanne Lockwood, as you've, as you've mentioned. I use the pronouns she and her. I describe myself as an inclusion and belonging specialist. So I work with organisations throughout the UK, Europe and further afield. And uh, I work with people, people, uh, HR people, talent acquisition, DNI, OD, various different aspects around people. And the aim that I work for is positive people experiences. So I'm looking to try and create environments where people can thrive, either in, in, in recruitment, either in the workplace, as stakeholders, as customers, wherever that may be. Um, additionally, yeah, we're in Pride Month, it's June. I also uh, have a, a passion through my own particular uh, characteristic of uh, a pride supporting LGBTQ plus people, queer people, and especially transgender individuals uh, from whatever their identity may be. Tell us then um, a little bit more about yourself, maybe your story, um, about how you, you got to where you are now and, and what sort of... Um, what sort of issues worry you in the DNI, you know, scene? Tell me more. Well, I, as, as I mentioned, yeah, I'm identified as a trans woman. I'm I'm currently fifty seven years old, or fifty seven years young, or fifty seven percent, as my friends like to refer to me as. So, hopefully, still got forty three percent to go. We, we can always hope. And I, I gender transitioned. Back in uh, 2017, so what's that coming up for five years ago, just over five years ago, I I realised for most of my life that my gender identity didn't align with that I was assigned at birth. I'd always felt like I was in the wrong queue, um, in the wrong environment. Things weren't quite right. I was, I didn't know enough, didn't have enough language to describe it. You know, I was brought up in the 60s and 70s. You know, there was no internet, there was no no acceptance. Homosexuality was still criminal in uh, 1967 and partially just criminalised thereafter. Uh, then we had the AIDS uh, pandemic and uh, endemic in the what, late 70s and early 80s, mid 80s. So I, I grew up in a world where being queer was not talked about. It was kind of brushed under the carpet. It certainly wasn't something my parents would talk about or discuss. So I had no language. So I, I didn't know that what I felt, what was going on in my head, was was something that other people experienced. It, it wasn't just me. I think it took a growing up and into my teens. It, it, it reinforced itself, and I got I got married in in my early twenties. So nineteen eighty seven. So. 35 years ago this year, I got married to my wife, Marie, two wonderful children in our 20s. And I was growing a business. I was uh, working hard, trying to support the family, acquiring assets and houses and obligations. And over this time, you kind of 
you kind of just just get on with life you know all these things are going on in your head this gender identity conflict i had i guess it was able to be i was able to push it to one side purely because i had so much else to focus on so i just got on with it yeah i knew no other way it wasn't until maybe my mid 40s i suppose so 10 odd years ago that i suppose the internet came to life people were talking about stuff um section 28 banning homosexual education in schools was kind of lifted the gender recognition act of 2004 was talked about uh, the equality act 2010 came in uh so protected uh, protection to gender reassignment then they start talking about same-sex marriage and all these various other aspects and i suddenly think there was a more of a voice for queer people lgbtq plus people trans people and uh, i suppose that that knowledge that realization that I wasn't unique I wasn't alone um I met other people at that time in in, in the mid 2010 to 2014 2015 I met people uh through support groups and I realized that their story was no no different to mine you know I was not crazy I was not this person that was living this strange life in my head that that was unrelatable and I suppose once you start to have that self-belief that 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 knowledge that who you are is valid then your brain allows you to develop and explore that. I wasn't fighting against myself. I was embracing and accepting it. So by the time it got to, I don't know, 2016, 2017, I was, my brain, my sense of self got to a point where it just became necessary to do something about it. I couldn't keep it in anymore. That box wasn't strong enough to hold it in. So 2017, I, I sold my business that I had, I'd run for 15 years with my business partners and uh, dumped myself on my bed on March the 1st, 2017, going, what am I going to do now? I didn't know what, what my name was. I had really agreed with my wife, my family, that I was going to change my name. Um, whilst I had this kind of outline plan, it wasn't really collaborative with anybody else. It was kind of, I was just trying to head in, in a direction. So, yeah, 2017 was a pretty tricky time mentally for me, mm -hmm. uh, trying imagine. to deal with family, trying to re-establish re my identity. As a, as a, not just a, my gender identity, my, my identity as a as a human being, uh, a role, a purpose, not having a, a company, a business anymore. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's, so twenty seventeen, there I was, and I I think I finally got to the point where I was comfortable with who I was. Changed my name. My wife was comfortable, although struggling. My children struggled. Yeah. But there, there I was, and uh, I embarked on this new career from, from IT into HR, talent acquisition, inclusion, belonging, um, and spent the rest of 2017, 2018 rapidly trying to acquire that knowledge to become competent in that sphere, overcome my limiting beliefs, if you like. Yeah. It's surprising me when you say about how recent the legislation around giving freedoms to everybody is it's, it's just so surprising that it's the last 12 years that we had the, the Equality Act that opened up. Well, there were. So I mean, the, the, there were. The Equality was, Act 2010 was a. It, it rolled up many other pieces of legislation, yeah, the, the, the DDA, the Equal Pay, all those kind of things. And, and I believe that the, the trans rights were part of some other legislation. I think it was in terms of disability or mental yeah, health or something. Yeah, I'm sure. So yeah, it was a it was a it was a consolidation and a rationalisation of many. I think sixty three, sixty four different pieces of legislation at the time. Yeah, yeah, but um, it it has taken 
it's been a long journey, really, um, and very incremental in its approach, hasn't it? I mean, um, yeah, I mean, speaking as a disabled person, I know it took a long time to get, you know, the Disability um, Discrimination Act sorted out and how long that took. Um, and, you know, so, yeah, I know it's a, a huge, a huge, an area that constantly needs to be reviewed. So tell me a little more about why you feel that diversity and inclusion, it's so important to us as individuals, but also to organisations. Why, why should an organisation really bother? Why should they take the time? to actually think about, well, as an organisation, we need to be more inclusive. Well, I just think if we, if we just boil it back or peel it back to an individual and maybe the person, the business leader, the HR manager, whoever I'm speaking to, I'd like to think that that person that I'm speaking to would love to be included, would love to have opportunities, would love to be valued for who they are. Uh, the in quotes, bring your whole self to work, um, that having that psychological safety, being valued, respected, um, judged on their their attributes and their merits, rather than being influenced by bias or prejudice. I'm sure we all. I think that's not. It's not. It's not an ideal. It's just what we would consider a basic human right to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. So inclusion really is just treating people fairly with dignity and respect, given equ equity. Uh, making sure that they have autonomy and agency over and, and self-control and feeling like they feel a part of something. So that's what we're talking about with DNI, and we, we, we call it DNI, or we, we've started to call it diversity and inclusion or culture and people, whatever your organisation calls it. But for me, the output of all of this is positive people experiences. So we're trying to create a positive experience for people in our in our recruitment, our talent acquisition pipeline. We're trying to create positive experiences for our, our staff, our colleagues, our employees, our, our, our people. We want to create positive people experiences for our customers, for our stakeholders, for our shareholders, for the interaction we have in the world. So that's for me what we're trying to do through DNI. Even through HR, we want to create positive employee experiences, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think what we often forget is we hide behind this DNI, maybe people who have lived a life where they've and I'm going to use the word privilege, and I know people say, well, privilege, all that's one of these woke words. What does it mean? I'm not privileged. So I use privilege just to mean really having advantages, unearned advantages, advantages that you don't even think about you have because you've always had them. It's like breathing air. You don't know how much you breathe until you haven't got in the air or you're underwater. Then you realise the impact of not being able to breathe there. So it's just raising that awareness that people who have these privileges, and that, as I say, not meant to be a dirty word, it's just how you have privilege. You don't consider that what the impact is on people who don't have those privileges. And I saw a great example. I read it in an article the other day around someone who described privilege as being having an aerial view of the world. So you look down on things. When you have less privilege, you tend to have a, a, a ground zero view and you tend to be looking up. So when you're looking down on top of the world, everything looks very flat and accessible. The, the distance between point A and point B is almost a straight line. But when you're on the ground looking up, you can see the contours, you can see the mountains, you can see the crags and crevices 
And when the point A to point B means actually you've got to go down a valley, climb the other side, go down another valley, climb the other side. So the path is not as straightforward as it would appear by looking straight down. And I think that's what we often miss is we don't see the path that other people have to walk, that other people have to fight and struggle over. Whereas the people who are lower down, there's, there's this kind of camaraderie or allegiance where we see, we see the struggles that people mm. with disability have, queer people have, women yeah. have, um, yeah. young girls face, uh, people with different ethnicities, mm. because we're yeah. all lower down the mountain and we can see these cracks and crevices mm. and these hills and mm. things we've got to navigate. Whereas when you're up high, you see nothing. You just see this flat terrain. I think that's the challenge we've got to overcome. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I don't know what you think, but it seems to me that uh, social media and uh, communication this day, these days has, has improved our understanding of difference, perhaps, because we are exposed to it uh, a lot more than we ever have done. I mean, the George Floyd um, uh, incident, of course, raised the uh, the the uh, agenda for black people, black lives matter so enormously and i think it, it it's those those moments are completely change everybody's world view on on um those sorts of areas you know without those would anybody really have started to think as closely as they did about uh, the issues of the difference in the colour of our skin, how we're treated and how we can be so badly treated. But the challenge is it's it's the, it's the momentum. You know, we we had the murder of George Floyd by the police officer in, in America. We had the police officer's trial. We had the uprising. We had the uh, social activation in various <coughs> towns and cities <coughs> in the UK, <coughs> the Colston statue yeah, being ripped down yeah. in Bristol and thrown yeah. in the canal. We had all these massive statements. We had all these companies around the world yeah. um, making these big, bold inclusion, um, anti-racist statements, some of them authentic, some of them inauthentic, some of them performative. And where are we now? Has the world changed fundamentally in terms of the lives of, of black, brown, Asian, East Asian, West Asian, Southern Asian people, people from marginalised socioeconomic groups? No, it hasn't. The world hasn't changed. The lived experience of most people I speak to hasn't changed one iota. We saw a lot of publicity, we got a lot of momentum, but nothing's changed. And I think we could say the same around pride, we could say about sexism. Women are still facing sexism in the workplace. Women are still being abused. Women are still being denied opportunity. So these big events, they create they create awareness, but the, the awareness doesn't manifest itself because people get shell-shocked, they get, they get bland to it. The war in Ukraine, the first week it was shock horror. Everybody was up in arms and abhorrent. Now, if you watch the TV, we're now, what, middle of middle of June, we look at the TV now, and Ukraine is about fourth on the list. It's no longer the top headline. You know, people dying, people being shelled is no longer... We've just moved on in our lives, and the same happens with Black Lives Matter and other, and other big, big things, is unless you are on the ground directly affected by these significant issues... It doesn't matter. You, know, you, you said yourself, you, you have a disability. The government launched this national disability strategy um, was it earlier in the year or late last year. And that was a big fanfare. Everyone started talking about it. All the big charities, Mind, Lina Cheshire, everyone started talking about this. But what fundamentally is changing? Nothing. We've done a bit of awareness. We've ch chucked some cash at it. 
nothing is changing. So that's the challenge in DNI. We've come a long way. I look over my shoulder. We've come a long way. But I look forward. We've still got this massive, infinite journey ahead of us. And the challenge with that is keeping the momentum. Because otherwise, we just slide back and let it go. How do we get it to change then? How do we get people to change attitudes? Is it just, you know, each individual person making the doing the best that they can to make a difference to whoever they meet from a disadvantaged or a minority group? How do we how how can we affect change? Organizations, I mean, I think if you've got the right leaders, it can make a difference. But yet again, it's it's. Can we ever really get away from people always wanting to think that there is somebody who's not as good as they are? That they are either not perfect, the wrong colour, the wrong sexual orientation. You know how do we how do we get over that that human. Desire to be feel that they are have something more, Do you know that they, that, you know you talk about positive people experiences, but there are there is a minority in our world who who like to look down on other people because it makes them feel good, because there are people like that. I mean, I've come across them, and so I don't know what's. But how do you how it being charitable? That? Being charitable, <laughs> I'd like to think that often. It's not conscious that people look down on you to make themselves feel better. I, th I think it's just the circle, the life they've lived, the privilege they hold. They've never had the need to consider the op opposite view, the lower view, or they, or they, ha or there's a belief that they've succeeded through working hard. Anyone can succeed through working hard. So I think there's there's a there's a disconnect between people's realities. And I and I, and I don't want to be uncharitable or unfair and say it's deliberate or conscious. I think a lot of this is unconscious. It's just the, the platform and the sphere they work and operate in. Um, but the challenge really is, again, it's, it's about this momentum changing hearts and minds. And you're, you're quite right in what you say. It is down to leadership. And I think when we're talking, bringing this back to the workplace, back to organisations, the leadership tier is crucial when we're creating culture change, in, inclusion, belonging, well-being, mental health initiatives. And, I, and I'd, I'd like to think that, in the last two years, we've kind of we've kind of tweaked to the fact that employee well-being, employee welfare, mental health are really big issues in the workplace. And through COVID, now we're coming out of COVID, we've got the, the reintegration of people from hybrid, working on-site, working remotely, working. Uh, we see bland statements in the government saying we've got to get people back into the office because anyone who's working out of the office is lazy, which is completely disrespecting everybody who's worked very successfully the last two years from home. Uh, so, yeah, I think leadership is key. You know, we, we look at some of the, the core attributes of inclusive leadership. We think about empathy. We think about compassion. Uh, we think about cultural intelligence, cognizance of bias, curiosity, compa comp compassion, collaboration, all these kind of attributes of an inclusive leader. I now see organisations starting to invest in training their leader because there, there was this myth that you, you were born a leader. Unless you're a man born into a wealthy family with a with a with a military parentage, you were seen as you you were only you could be a leader of men. And I think well, I'd like to think over the last hundred or so years we've realised that leadership is a, is a skill you can train. Empathy and compassion, human human connection are skills and 
topics that you can introduce people to that they can learn. So you you don't you're not born a leader. Leaders are nurtured. Um, yes, you can have you can some people have attributes that make them easier to transition to leadership. We 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 have, we have to hire, train and nurture our leaders rather than expect them to be born, or expect a good technician, someone who's good at their job, suddenly to become a leader without training. And I think we what we've ended up doing is we've ended up promoting people. Uh, I'm not trying to say beyond their competence, but, but without the support they need. And you know, when, when COVID hit, I mean, we're going back two years here, I know. When COVID hit, nobody had experience about how to lead in a remote uh, workforce. But the organisation that really succeeded out of this were the ones that recognised how they invested in their leadership to create the skills where they could look after and nurture their teams. And I think that's what we need to look at. We need to look at what can be done in that kind of crisis and then it's not lose that momentum now the world is going back to whatever we call normal again yeah yeah but increasingly with the world being a change happening at in at phenomenal speed leaders are, are going to have to be adapting their behaviors on an ongoing basis aren't they they're not going to be able to uh, stick to their old ways because the world is it's just not what it was and uh what they did what they're doing now isn't what they're going to be doing next year or the year after that because you know the, everything around us is changing and that's and, and that's the clock back even further yeah so, so um, going back pre uh, why the clock even further back than yeah. covid oh, we yes. look, you know, yeah. we look at mm-hmm. yeah, fa- facebook was invented in what 20, 2007 it became kind of popular in 2013 2014 and beyond uber amazon all these companies, all these technologies did not exist. We didn't have apps for stuff. We weren't ordering on our phone. We weren't doing all this. We had to go into the bank. So suddenly we look at what's changed in the last 10, 15 years and map that forward. So what we're doing today, we have to be honest with ourselves and say what we're doing today isn't going to be what we're doing tomorrow. I think there's a sort of study that in the world of work, 80% of the jobs that we'll be doing in 2030 haven't existed, haven't yet been invented or exist. So the majority of our workforce is going to be coming in. You know, we've got five years. We're going to have our Gen, Gen Zs, our Gen Alphas coming along. And our, our Gen Xs are going to be falling off into retirement and our millennials become the kind of a, the senior people in the organisation. So our workforce dynamics are going to change. We're going to have multiple generations, yeah, different exactly. sorts of work, different sorts of collaboration and a different mm-hmm. world. So as leaders... We have to be ready for, to adapt and change. And, and organizations, companies need to be able to challenge these things. Otherwise, you, you just do a, a blockbuster and Netflix comes along and takes you out. Mother Care, it was run by a board of directors that were mostly men. So no, is it no wonder that Mother Care didn't adapt to the changing needs of mothers and parents? Mm. Given that, you know, things are changing very fast, and we've got these multiple generations in the workplace and all the other changes to the demographic. What do you feel that those of us working in the diversity, inclusion and equality arena should be doing to help those who are not comfortable with those differences? Because there are a lot of people who, you know, just don't feel that they they know what to say in a situation. They may be I mean, you know, the first if you're the first time, say, an, a, a man in his sixties is confronted by a coworker who's a young trans girl, he probably is very thrown. He'll either say completely the wrong thing because 
he doesn't know or because he thinks it's that that's the sort of thing you should say as a man i don't know how do you get people to be embracing um these changes and what sort of ways can we support them to feel comfortable in uh having those you know positive people experiences what what are the things i mean language i think is is a thing that, that probably people don't know how to talk or to open a conversation they feel awkward so they just ignore people rather than actually engage with them because they don't know how to engage do you think that's that's part of the problem in the workplace completely i i agree and what i would say is without trying to create biases and and uh, and stereotypes about ages of people or of demographics in my experience as a trans woman as a person in the world in this dni fit sphere I wouldn't like to say it's down to a particular age group or a particular gender, or it's a real cross-section slice of society where it depends on your socialisation, your own lived experience, the environment you grow up. I know many people in their 70s and 80s who have children, who have queer children, who have queer grandchildren, who embrace them. So it's certainly not a pure generational issue. I think it's down to exposure. And this is how we address this. It's exposure and knowledge. So I, when I'm talking to leaders, when I'm talking to organisations around how do we how do we overca- overcome this fear of getting it wrong, there are there are two key tools in the toolbox for me. One of those, the first one is emotional intelligence, and again we can train this. We can train emotional intelligence. So if we think about, it's the first step is being self-aware. Who am I? How do I show up? How do people perceive me? How do I want to be perceived? So you're self-aware of, of your footprint, your impact on the world. And of course, once you're aware, you can self-regulate. If you don't want to come across in this way, you have to learn to control the way you portray yourself, self-regulation, self-management. And then you can start building compassion, you can build empathy, you can start to listen, active listening, you can start to build stronger relationships. So I I say emotional intelligence is really key, self-awareness and being able to self-regulate, knowing when to talk, when not to talk, when to listen how to pick up body language cues, how to pick up the, those nuances of, of human dynamics. Um, and then the other side, the second key attribute for me is, is, is another cue, cultural intelligence, CQ. It's being aware of the different cultures that exist. And then the first competency of that is is the drive, the drive to find out more. You're curious about different people. You don't see a programme on television about a person with a disability and go, oh, I don't want to listen to that, turn it off. It's actually hanging on to the remote, letting it play and finding out different experiences. So drive to find out knowledge. For knowledge, we can have a strategy on how to apply that knowledge and then we can take action. So that cultural intelligence, emotional intelligence blended together will give us tools in our toolbox. We, we can't expect to meet everybody the same. So we have to have some kind of this, this technique in our head, knowing how we can talk to people. You, you mentioned earlier about the fact that if someone was approaching you as a wheelchair user, do they crouch down? Do they lean over you? How do they talk to you? Are they scared? And simply saying, hi, Debbie, should I pull a chair up and we can have a chat? You go, yeah, pull a chair up. That'd be great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, that's it. Um, but being nervous around you is going to make you feel excluded or tolerated or mm-hmm. or I'm the problem. What have I done to you if you can't talk to me? And mm-hmm. So yeah. it's overcoming those barriers in a safe, mm-hmm. controlled way, but learning, being interested in people, being interested yeah. in who you are as well, really mm-hmm. key. That curiosity thing comes up a lot these days, and I think it is a—it's very key to improving um, our behaviours. It's being curious about others and about 
how we react, our own curiosity about how we react to other people too, and probably reflecting on that more than maybe we currently do. Um, what about the future then? What do you think we'll be talking about in five years' time around the DNI agenda? Do you think it's going to... I, I mean, my feeling is that it won't have gone away. I think it'll still be here. We'll still have to keep reminding people that um, underneath the skin, we're all the same um, and reminding people of that and the need more and more to embrace difference in our workplaces, particularly because we all need those skills um, more than ever, because the skills crisis is creating a need for workers from, we can't afford to alienate work, work, workers so that probably won't change. So, any other thoughts on the future of DNI? Or... I, well, I, the future of people. I think you know, if we think about where we were as a society in the seventies, in the sixties, in the fifties, if we look at Victorian times, Edwardian times. So, we as a society, as a human race, as a as a as a culture in the UK, we've changed immeasurably in the last one hundred and fifty years. We've changed immeasurably, really, when we look back into the 80s and some of the, what we thought was funny, the comedy, the working practices, the, the laws and the legislation we have that protect us, the way we talk to each other, the multicultural society we have now is, is evolving at, at a pace of change. And I think when we look at, bring, we, we focus on the younger generation, as I've mentioned earlier, the Gen Z, the Gen Alphas and the Gen Betas that are yet to come, we're seeing a, 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 a group of, of, of a generation where they're far more accepting, far more inclusive, their multiculturalism, uh, gender, sexuality, they're more blended than they ever were. So I think as we as they move into the driving seat in society, we will, we will naturally see a, another evolution. But this is going to be generational change. We, I, I, you know, no matter how much we try to force change, all we can do is evolve it. And as frustrated as I get, and as everybody else does, we can't force it. You know, the World Economic Forum was saying at the current rate of change, we won't get gender equality or gender parity in the Western world until 2076. That's 74 years' time. 2076, 74 years' time. And that's that's the Western world. If you look at globally, we, we bring in the Middle East, the Far East, we bring in Russia and Asia. They can add 200 years onto that. So that's just gender. We, that's not including race. That's not including disability or other LGBTQ+. So all we can do is chisel at that as quick as we can, and we've got to change hearts and minds. We've got to get momentum. And maybe what we do as our generation, I'm a Gen Xer, maybe my responsibility is to make sure that I do my best to create as equitable a society as I can, knowing full well that it won't be me, it'll be my grandchildren that are able to benefit from this. But it's a, it's a polarity. It's moving in a positive direction is what I could do. And I, I think if I, if, I, if I stop and get frustrated by it, I'll get brought down. But if I can be positive and create momentum, that's all I hope to achieve. Momentum for the next generation to pass the baton on and to start improving lives where I can, calling out inequalities, making sure we have equity where we can, challenging people, educating people and evolving the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, that seems um, a perfect place to stop because I think... Uh, that, that message of passing the baton on and evolving and keeping the momentum going is, is absolutely key to any major change. And 
it, it is up to us, uh, us all as individuals to, to keep that message very much in the foreground of everybody around us and calling out and challenging people when you see them, uh, you know, consciously being discriminatory. So that's what we have to do. Joanne, it's been an absolute delight talking to you again. Um, We will keep in touch. um, And for now, I'd say thank you again and goodbye. Thanks, Debbie. The TJ Podcast is produced by Debbie Carter and mixed and edited by Digital Skills People. The title music is by the Leisure All-Stars featuring Yolanda. The sponsorship music is by Audio Nautics and is used under a Creative Commons license. TJ is a publishing title owned by Dodds Group PLC.